0: I'm Snow White, and after I worked for Disney, I went into a long retirement. But in 1989, Alan Carr invited me to open the 1989 Oscars, and oh boy, was I excited. I couldn't bring my seven little friends with me, but I did bring seven little lawsuits, Rob Lowe singing Proud Mary, and one of the most infamous live train wrecks in television history. Come back with me and let's look at the disastrous nineteen eighty nine Oscars on this week's This Was a Thing. (laughs) This was a thing. This was a thing. The movie cruising, with Al Pacino, whoa! Cabbage
1: Patch Dolls and Teddy Ruxpin McRib and shares
0: Moonstruck Oscar win That was a thing, this was a thing
2: Hi, I'm Ray. And I'm Rob. And you're listening to This Was a Thing, the podcast that dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. On today's episode, we
3: are looking at the 1989 Oscar Ceremony, the 61st Annual Academy Awards, which has gone down in history as probably the worst broadcast
2: of all time. Now I understand why you told me I needed to wear a tux. You have to wear a tux today. Oh, Ray, make sure you wear a tux. Wear a tux. I didn't know why, but I wore a tux. I think you look fabulous. Where'd you rent it at?
3: Uh, well, uh Friar Tux Ah, good choice yeah. Don't forget, Friar Tux, not a proud
2: sponsor Not a proud sponsor, but they have the best name in the Tux business
3: That's so true So, Ray, we are talking today, yes, about the Academy Awards ceremony Folks, before Will Smith decked Chris Rock And before uh Bonnie and Clyde tried to steal the Oscar from Moonlight And even before the meme-worthy Adel Zim, There was an Oscar ceremony that was so bizarre, so crazy, so odd That it changed the entire trajectory of the ceremony itself and ended up destroying the career of one of Hollywood's greatest producers, a gentleman by the name of Alan Carr. Hail Alan Alan Carr. Carr. If you uh, listen to our You Can't Stop the Music episode, you'll also hear a little bit more about the great Alan Carr. Do you remember, like with your family and stuff, like what did you watch the Oscars for? Did you watch to see the celebrities? Did you watch to see the music? What'd you watch?
2: I mean, I feel like I enjoyed... Like I, I remember wanting to watch what, what Billy Crystal had to say you know oh, okay. so you know what I mean okay. like and I remember like I think I can remember like my first like shocking Oscar moment was when Shakespeare in Love beat Saving Private Ryan, I remember that being the first time of hearing a movie that like, oh, this one's going to win the Oscar. Oh, Saving Private Ryan's best picture, best picture, best picture, best picture, best picture. And you were, I was watching it like, okay, well, and the Academy Award goes to, and I was just shocked. Yeah. Not having seen it, but just, I think that was the first time I can remember, huge Oscar hype. It's
3: interesting that you said and the Academy Award goes to because that is actually a byproduct of this 1989 Academy Awards ceremony. Oh. As opposed to and the winner is. Yeah. Okay, so this is so you kind of have a little understanding going. Yeah. So folks, as we all know, the Academy Awards is the annual awards that is given out every single year. It's those little bald men and those little trophies not me and those little trophies <laughs> say yes, congratulations. You were the best. Yes, Queen. Yes, Queen. Yes, Spencer God Yes,
2: Best Supporting Actress.
3: <laughs> so, folks, the Academy Awards. We're going to talk about the ceremony and why a big, what a big deal it was. So, the ceremony itself started in 1929, and the idea as we you know of the Academy Awards is to acknowledge that you did really good in your field this year. And the original ceremony in 1929 lasted a total of 15 minutes. That's right, 15 minutes long. And in a show of real anticlimactic excitement, they told the newspapers the winners beforehand. So that way, everyone could just go and enjoy yeah. and celebrate, which makes sense to me. As time went on, the ceremony moved from radio to television in 19, you know, the first year it was ever on television? 54. Fuck yes, that's really? exactly right. Yeah, 1954. And it was extended in length to about four hours, usually, over the decade. Wow. So it was a big ceremony. And one of my favorite quotes about the Oscars, I think, is uh, what? One-time host Johnny Carson said, "It's two hours of sparkling entertainment spread out over a four-hour show," <laughs> and uh, some might say the same yes, about yes, sir. Yes, sir. And then the the. Academy got the bright idea. And they were like, maybe we shouldn't tell the winners to the press ahead of time. So that way, everyone's under surprise. And that's sort of how it moved on. Now, because TV was in its natal stages in the 1950s and Hollywood glamour was king, just about everyone would gather to watch the Oscars in the 50s and the 60s to see the fashion and the stars and the tearful speeches. And it was always like, you know, led and shepherded by a masterful, wonderful sparkling host. Bob Hope was a host for a long time. He holds the record at 19 times hosting. Wow. The great Johnny Carson. Sometimes they would have like teams of people. One year they had Donald O'Connor in Hollywood and Frederick March in New York and they hosted in a bicoastal fashion. I mean, the host of these events had to be someone who was like the dean of the event and was fundamental to the success of the broadcast. But there, it, as important as the host is, there has to be someone behind the scenes who could produce the event, a producer. As per Academy custom prior to the ceremony, the producer for the Academy Awards got paid a whopping... Zero dollars. Oh, wow. The producer was just out of the goodness of their heart. They got an IMDb credit. <laughs> they got an IMDb credit. And I think maybe had they been dis- more discriminatory with who they were choosing and actually maybe coughed up some money for this, they might have not run into the problem that they did. Let's talk a little bit about the broadcast, though, so in the 1980s. oh, Unfortunately, folks, in the 1980s, this is when the Oscars are beginning to falter a bit, uh, despite like the incredible movies that are being produced in this era, because it was looked at as a little too old school and a little bit formulaic. I'm going to be honest with you, doing research for this one, I watched like three Oscar ceremonies prior to the 1989 one. You literally cannot tell them apart. They are like the same logo, same set. I mean, the same structure. It was just so freaking boring. In addition to the fact that like it always looked the same, then you had things like MTV and all these other things that were coming out that made. Even the Grammys and the Tonys, in some ways, looked sharper and snazzier than the Academy Awards, which just came off as boring and stuffy. I bet,
2: like, the MTV Video Music Awards probably, like, threw the Oscars for a loop because it was just so of the now and present and, you know, all every all the hip and hot things and, every, and Oscars, like you said, were still so formulaic. No, absolutely,
3: and I think it's also kind of a weird time in Hollywood because you have, like, the... The older established stars from the studio system, they're still alive and they're still sort yeah. of running things. That's like the, you know, the Cary Grant, sure. the Jimmy Stewart and all that, you know, that Ava Marie Saint, all that. They still have the respect and everything yeah. that... But at the same time, you have a film industry that's really changing and getting more visceral and more independent. So you have people like Scorsese yeah. and Dustin Hoffman and Robert De Niro. And so I don't think they were able, ever able to like match those two things together. Yeah. And this is the weird transitional time. So for them, they were like, we're just going to stay clinging to the past and what we know in the past. It never cared about no. being cool. And a lot of the times in the 1980s, it was kind of clear who was going to win the award. Sure. For, so there was no excitement about it. The host that was like what you tuned in for was Johnny Carson, who did a brilliant job hosting and I think was probably one of the best hosts ever. But by the mid-80s, he was like, I'm not really interested in hosting anymore. So that meant ratings were going to dip. And then they had a rotating list of hosts and producers that sort of filtered through the ceremony, hoping that each team they brought in was like going to boost the rating. So I'm only going to go back a few years in the eighties to show you what leads up to 89 in 1986. They brought on Stanley Donan, um, who was you know singing in the rain and all that stuff. And th- he's going to produce it. And Robin Williams is going to host, but it's oh. so clear the Academy got nervous that Robin Williams was going to be out there by himself. So they added Alan Alda and Jane Fonda. To come out and host with him. So uh, the three of them shared hosting duties. That must have been a fun rehearsal. The reviews the next day were not very good. One of the newspapers saying the program might as well have begun with the announcement dead from L.A. It's Academy of Night. So in 1987, they brought on Samuel Goldwyn Jr. to produce. And this year, the hosts were going to be Chevy Chase, Goldie Hawn, and uh, Australia's very own Crocodile Dundee, Paul Hogan. Yep. Samuel Goldwyn actually came in and had a really good idea. He's like, this show is too fucking long. He's like, it's gonna be three hours or less, I'm determined. And in view of that, he told people regarding like the winner's acceptance speeches, he's like, you all get 45 seconds. He goes, the light next to the camera is gonna start blinking at 45 seconds and go to red at 55, and after one minute, we're either gonna to cut to a commercial or go somewhere else. So he was the one who was like, we have to keep this fucking thing moving. Despite all of Samuel Goldwyn's best efforts, it did not go as well as they were hoping. The ratings were kind of okay, And in 1988, it was the 60th anniversary. Goldwyn was back. Chevy Chase was the host. Goldwyn was smart. He moved it to the Shrine Auditorium because he's like, there's more space and more time to rehearse. Once again, though, the reviews were not good. This is what they said about Chevy Chase. Chevy Chase stopped the show cold over and over. As the ever-unctuous host, he tried to get laughs by picking his nose and sneezing into his hand when his ad-libs failed, which was often. (laughs) Goldwyn just seemed to be at odds with the Academy, and the Academy was at odds with itself about what should the ceremony be. Could a new producer be brought in that could actually revitalize the show? Yes. Yes. Richard Kahn, who was the president of the Academy, had heard all the same critiques. Too long of a show. Not a funny show. It wasn't glamorous. It meanders. It's dull. It's stuffy. Who is the opposite of all of those criticisms? Enter Little Alan Carr. (sighs) Alan Carr, folks, was a producer, a tiny man, yet quite girthy, and he was nicknamed Caftan Courageous for his flamboyant outfits. He loved a caftan, Gayer than life, a man whose mission was to get every star in the world to his home and to throw the most outrageous parties, Carr was a producer that seemed totally antithetical to every stuffy old white man producer of the era. Now, he knew from a very early age he wanted to be a producer. He grew up in Chicago. He produced plays with Betty Davis. He co-produced the Playboy TV show. Uh, and then he slipped into the world of talent management and he represented people like Anne Margaret and Marvin Hamlish and Joan Rivers and discovering people like Mark Hamill and Michelle Grease to Pfeiffer. Carr knew promotion and his ability to promote his stars led the producer, the great producer, Robert Stigwood to hire Carr to promote his movie. The Who's Tommy, and because of Carr, it became a hit. Then Carr worked on re-editing and redubbing a movie called Survive, which is basically the alive story. You know, like the the plane that crashes in oh, and the Andes yeah. and they eat each other. And this movie got him a lot of attention. That led him then to produce the ad campaign for. Saturday Night Fever, which became like the greatest hit of the 1970s, but mostly because it was Alan Carr's brilliance at promoting the film. Interesting. Alan Carr's now like unstoppable in the late 70s in Hollywood. And he gets hired to do the promotions for an upcoming movie called Grease, which is going to be based on the musical. And Carr said, I'll chip in $6 million to be co-producer. And uh, you have to put in my client, Olivia Newton-John. And he did. And as you know, the movie was a smash success, like a big old motherfucking smash success. Carr was invincible. And he thought his next project was going to rival Greece. It was going to be what he was known for. It was called... Can't Stop the Music. Oh, so Ray okay. Hebel, would you do me a favor? Because I know you covered this in season one. Would you tell us a little
2: bit about Can't Stop the Music? Can't Stop the Music is a fictional retelling of Village People's Formation starring Steve Gutenberg and Caitlyn Jenner. Caitlyn
3: Jenner's in it. Caitlyn uh, Jenner.
2: Nancy Walker directed Nancy it.
3: Walker. And it's the village people. It's the village people. Well, this movie bombs. I mean, like, Ugh, really bombs. bummer. Then comes Grease 2, which tanks even more, even though I low-key love it. and Even lots greasier. Of... <laughs> Just like Alan Carr's Captain. <laughs> because Can't Stop the Music fails and Grease 2 fails, Hollywood is now starting to return its back on Alan Carr. So Alan Carr decides to go somewhere else he has never been before, and that is Broadway! In 1983, Alan Carr produced his first Broadway musical, La Folles, oh. by Jerry Herman, which was revolutionary because it was the first musical in which a gay couple was at the center. And not only was it a smash hit, it won Best Musical, beating out shows by such people as Stephen Sondheim, Richard Maltby and David Shire, and Candor and Ebb of Chicago and Cabaret fame. So this little producer came in and ended up having a smash hit of a show. Maybe because of that, he'll get another Hollywood shot. And in an interview, just offhandedly, he mentions that one day he would like to produce the Oscars. Richard Kahn, the president of the Academy, really needed to shake things up. And he needed a producer who would say, quote, fuck the formula and who could take big chances. Because honestly, when Carr took big chances, he often succeeded. Grease one of the greatest movie musicals ever made. Le Cage au Faux, which told Stephen Sondheim, hey, move over. Carr could make the Oscars unique and fantastic. So Khan says to Carr, we want you to produce it. And Alan Carr jumps at the chance. This is heaven. Before we look at the Oscars, we should probably talk a little bit about the movies that were nominated this year. And a reminder, the 1989 Oscars are celebrating the movies that came out the year before in 88. And there are some incredibly fantastic nominees that the. audience Audiences across the world want to see. Here were some of the films and people that were being nominated this year. Rain Man, Working Girl, A Fish Called Wanda, Mississippi Burning, Big, Dangerous Liaisons, Coming to America, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? And starry actors competing against each other like Dustin Hoffman versus Tom Hanks, Jodie Foster versus Meryl Streep. Then there was Gina Davis, Kevin Kline, Sikorny Weaver, and on and on and on. This is also going to be exciting because this is the first year... The Oscars will be shown in Russia, the USSR, Mm. for the first time. This is a pretty big deal. Now, let's talk about the changes that Alan Carr makes in the pre-production of this. First thing that he does is he gets rid of the entire old guard. Everyone is gone. None of the old directors, none of the old writers. Then he brings on some of the best in the business, the writer Bruce Valanche, who's been a previous guest, composer Marvin Hamlish uh will come on. The director will be Jeff Margolis and he keeps telling everybody, I want it witty, I want it old school, I want glamour, I want surprises. That was the explicit order. Alan decided what people love seeing is what people are wearing. So he extends the red carpet segments. So, which is still being used to this day. So thanks Alan Carr for extending the red carpet segment. He also lets the writers know that being included as an Oscar nominee, he's like, to me, that's the win. So no longer are people going to say, and the winner is, it will now be. And the Oscar goes to, this is an Alan Carr idea. They still use it today. And to show the collaborative nature of the business, there'll be no host. No host, just a long line of celebrities. Now, this is very daring. This will be the first year the Oscars goes without a host. But what about the comedic monologue at the beginning, though? I'm so happy you asked. That just means that there might be more time for a musical number in the beginning. What? What? The opening number was a staple at the Oscars. Sometimes it was simple, like uh, Liza Minnelli coming out and singing a solo. Or it could be really, really grand. And folks, I'm going to be honest with you. I think the worst opening number of an Oscars came from the year before. It was 1988. And you have to go online and look at it. There's going to be a link for you. I don't even know how to describe it. It starts off with a wall of like catacombs. And then each of the catacombs is somebody that puts a movie together, a director, a cinematographer, an editor, an actor. And they literally will, you know, in a chorus line that ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-dum-bum, of course, They repeat that like 20 times, and each one of those phrases is assigned to a different person in the catacomb. It is camp beyond belief. And you're like, can this get any worse? And the answer is why, well, yes, it can. Because then what happens is is like 10, 12 guys come out dressed as Oscar statuettes and sing, God, I hope I get it. God, I hope I get
0: it. I hope I get it. I may not have another chance. Just be my one and only chance. I hope I get it. I hope I get it. Really, up to this kind of contest. A nomination's not enough. The competition's pretty tough. The gym, the rival wages. Oh, Oscar's shining bright. Oh, bear a cherished smile. Come home with me tonight.
3: Now, as bad as this number is, my friend. It at least is mercifully brief. You just have to sit there for like three minutes with your asshole puckered going, what am I watching? But Alan wanted the greatest opening number the Oscars had ever seen.
4: Of
2: course. Well, for that,
3: he needed not to look at Hollywood past. But San Francisco present. See, in San Francisco, there was an incredibly gay, incredibly campy musical called Beach Blanket Babylon, which was created by Steve Silver in 1974 and ended up being the world's longest running musical review, closing in 2019. The premise was simple. Snow White, this is in Beach Blanket Babylon, Snow White goes around the world looking for Prince Charming. And while she does, she meets all like topical people from that era and they sing satirical songs. Sort of like an SNL sketch. The hoot, though, of the show was that the actors wore abnormally large hats and set pieces as costumes.
2: That's a pretty big hoot.
3: And they had like these big hat hairdresses. I mean, it was it's it's very campy. It's like camp. Camp can be one of the other things that made Beach Blanket Babylon so fun was how incongruous the whole thing was. So, for example, there was a skit that was built around an actor dressed as a Sony television set, and that television set suddenly got transformed into Sonny Bono, and then a wildly overdone Cher lookalike came on stage and sang "I Got You Babe" with him.
2: So it literally by Al Franken. By
3: <laughs> Al, but it makes no fucking sense. Like, it's a Sony TV, and now it's Sonny Bono, and now they're going to sing I Got You. Like, there was no logic to any of it. You just sort of were high and thought it was funny. Alan Carr loved this show. And he brings Steve Silver down from San Francisco, and he's like, I want you to stage the opening number of the Oscars. And he goes, and I want it to be the same premise. It's Snow White, but instead of going around the world, Snow would go to Hollywood. And, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Let's look at the search for who's going to play Snow White. So at first, Alan asked Lorna Luft, Liza Minnelli's sister. And uh, (laughs) she was a smart person. She said, no, I'm not interested. So they needed to look for a Snow White. Enter 22-year-old Eileen Bowman. Eileen Bowman is a nice young actress working out here in Los Angeles. and She gets a call from her agent uh, for an audition. And all the agent says is, I can't tell you what it's for. I don't even know what it's for. You have to go to this address. And they'll tell you what to do once you get there. So she shows up to the address, which is a home. Somebody brings her in and says, hey, listen, you can just wait right in here. And they put her in a bedroom. And while she's sitting in the bedroom, she looks over and on the bed, she sees a snow white dress. She's like, what the fuck is that? Then the next thing she goes, she's a knock on the door. A makeup lady and hairstylist come in. They do her hair. They do her makeup. They're like, get in the dress. (laughs) She gets into the Snow White dress. They usher her into a living room. And coming out in a caftan is Alan Carr, who just sort of plops down in his caftan across from her, sees her do her Snow White like impression. And he goes, good. Do you want it? And she's like, want what? And he's like, well, you got the job. And she goes, well, what's the job? (laughs) And he's like, oh, you're going to be Snow White on the Oscars. Oh, sorry, he wasn't a captain. He was in a kimono. Top of the morning to you, Ray Hebel.
0: Oh, top of the morning to you, my little shaleily.
3: Okay, now I feel uncomfortable.
2: Have you found my lucky charms? Oh, not yet, but I haven't looked on
0: Oh, patreon.com yet.
2: What is a Patreon? Well, it's a place where all our loyal listeners can go and donate a dollar or two or five to help us keep this podcast going. And now how does one do that, my little
3: Warwick Davis?
0: Our little leprechauns can head on over to Patreon.com That's patreo .com <laughs> And
2: search for This Was a Thing, the podcast, and set a monthly donation. Even a dollar a month helps us. Your contributions help us continue doing what we're doing, and you get annually... Twenty-six more episodes that the general public does not even get, and don't worry, it's gonna be even more than that. Ooh, faith and Bigara! faith and Bigara over to Patreon to donate money. <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh, Danny, Danny boy, the, the pipes, pipes, the pipes are calling you. In. As Alan works on the opening. It becomes clear he really is into this idea of more is more. Now, the original idea that they had come up with for the opening simply was it was going to be four minutes. Snow White was going to go into the old Coconut Grove, which was an old club <laughs> here in Hollywood. And while in the Coconut Grove, it would be filled with Hollywood glamour. All the old stars of the 30s and 40s sitting at the tables and they would be acknowledged you know, and then people go, oh, my God, that's Buddy Rogers. Oh, my God, that's cocaine. Sin Charisse. But then Alan, probably in a cocaine-induced haze. Oh, this was a fever, cocaine fever dream. Buying caftans and kimonos yeah. like nobody's business like, I, even Marcus.
2: I, I'm cool in these caftans.
3: Alan said, no, let's go further. The old stars, let's not have them just sit there. No, let's move them around the stage. And it's the Coconut Grove, so there has to be a singer. Now, who would be the singer? Well, no less than closeted gay talk show host Merv Griffin. He was a singer, and he used to perform at the Coconut Grove, singing his big song, I've Got a Lovely Bunch of Coconuts. That's right. So now it was going to start with, I've Got a Lovely Bunch of Coconuts. They were going to parade around these old stars. Okay, are we done? No, no, no. At this point, the writers and those watching the bottom line were like, Alan, this is getting too costly and it's going to be too long. And Alan Carr kept saying, quote, these guys before me had no idea what they were doing in terms of how to produce a show. And he kept saying that in the press. So needless to say, that's not going to go. Yeah, over sure well. That's good. Now, Bruce Valange kept saying to him, be careful. This is hubris. After Merv Griffin like, parades around the old stars, we probably want to bring in somebody young and new. And we got to have some real singing here. Something contemporary. How about the song Proud Mary? Okay, well, who would Snow White sing it with? How about Rob Lowe? <laughs> okay, and why Proud Mary? Why not? <laughs> why not? What's turned into like a cute little moment has now going to be turning into like an 11-minute Extravagant. Yeah, i was gonna say when you said four minutes no which I is what like, normal. yeah i was
2: like that's it right. no no no
3: no because there's no host there's no comic monologue so he wants to fill all this time so after she dances with rob Lowe, they then go to the grauman's chinese theater where they sing jerry herman's just go to the movies <laughs> they're gonna there's gonna be a tap dance and at the end the piece de resistance is that miss bowman still in her snow white outfit is now going to come out in a, the hugest headpiece imaginable like they do in beach blanket Babylon. But the headpiece is going to be the Grauman's Chinese theater. I don't know how you explain this to people without seeing it. So folks, I'm encouraging you to do so. I do think though, that the best people to talk about it, about what exactly you are watching at the, for this opening of the ceremony is the great, Bruce Valanche. So I'm going to send it over to Bruce Valanche to tell you a little bit about what was going on at this Oscars.
4: Uh, There were several problems. One was that it was, uh, the Golden Age stars were not as you remember them. They were all older and they kind of were brought in from Palm Springs and it wasn't very glamorous to see Dorothy L'Amour being carried across the stage under the armpits by two guys and wearing thick glasses because she really couldn't see where she was going and Alice Faye and Tony Martin were older, and Roy Rogers and Dale Evans really didn't leave the table. And all of these people who had been legends in their times were not as you remember them. So instead of the audience going, oh my God, oh my God, they were going, oh my God. And it was, it was a series of those things. Um, and suddenly in the middle of it, out came Rob Lowe. And he and Snow White started dancing and doing Proud Mary which was you know, ahead of the time. But it was, the idea was, um, uh, it was so incongruous. It was like, what's Rob Lowe doing singing and dancing? What's he doing with Snow White? Who is that old lady in the background? Oh, that's Alice Faye. It was very strange. Uh, you can tell that
3: Bruce is not a
4: fan of this concept. Oh, no, no, no. So if
3: Bruce Valanche is saying this is uh, too campy, you know you're in trouble. So let's do this, my friend. Why don't we take a look right now? At this as well. Folks, you two can also take a look at the 1989 Oscars. It starts off with Army Archer, who's a name that we don't remember anymore, but he was the primary person who would interview people on the red carpet. Pre-Jan. Pre-Jone. And so it starts with him and his tuxedo outside of the Shrine Auditorium with a microphone, waiting to for a next celebrity to come up and talk to, and it ends up being Snow White. Oh.
5: And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's one of the great legends of Hollywood. She's back with
0: us tonight, Miss Snow White. Good evening. Oh, good evening, Mr. Archer. It is so exciting to be here tonight. I'm a little late, though. Can you tell me how to get into the theater?
5: That's easy, Snow. Just follow the Hollywood stars.
0: Follow the Hollywood stars? Oh, follow the-
3: Now, at this point, instead of giving Snow a star entrance, They have her come from the back of the house. Now, remember, if you're in the auditorium, you're not seeing or hearing what's happening outside. So all of a sudden, Snow White just appears up from behind you. It's pretty scary.
0: There are stars out tonight. Stars with glamour are gleaming and bright. And we only have stars.
3: Nobody wants to touch her. She keeps extending her hand and everyone looks repulsed.
0: You have made in the yes, we have for
3: She's now going to go over and talk to Tom Hanks and Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman looks so fucking uncomfortable. He's nominated for Rain Man this year, by the way. And you know what? You know they're all actors. And I know what Bruce Philantra was saying, which is like, why is this costume day player talking to me? But you know that every actor has been like, oh, I remember this. Like, I remember a bad job I had. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? So oh, like, absolutely. They, they're trying to be supportive, but also be like, what the fuck is yes. happening?
0: Of my Hollywood.
3: Then Snow White gets to go back up on the stage. And now it's going to go to the Coconut Grove, Dancing Waiters. And now there's tons of round tables on stage with tablecloths over them. Just keep an eye on those.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, Merv Griffin. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts.
1: There they are, standing in a row.
3: And now women dressed as coat with coconuts on their heads. They look like drag queens. Are dancing with Merv Griffin.
0: Good evening and welcome to the
2: fabulous Coconut Grove, where every night is exciting. Meet the stars, Mr. Buddy Rogers.
3: Now, since Charisse is the only one who doesn't embarrass herself, because she's like in her early 60s and is a beautiful dancer still. Everyone else looks like they're literally in the senior hall.
1: Isn't it exciting, Snow? Isn't it thrilling?
2: It gets better. Meet your blind date, Rob Lowe.
3: And here is her date, Rob Lowe.
0: Oh, Mr. Lowe, I'm such a fan. Really? Well,
1: I'm a big fan of yours, Snow, but you know, there's so much I'd like to know about you.
3: Two waiters have now come out with microphones. Rob Lowe here is 24 years old and musical theater is not his forte per se, but God bless him for giving it a good try.
0: Used to work a lot for Walt Disney. Starring in cartoons every night and day
1: But you said goodbye to grumpy and sleepy Left the dwarves behind, came to town to stay
3: Now, it's now six minutes of this. At this point, the number should be over. Now remember, this is the beginning of Rob Lowe. He's not a big star yet, Rob Lowe. And out there is Spielberg, all the big directors, all the big producers watching this. Now the coconut waitresses are dancing. Now the tables and chairs are dancing. All the old celebrities have gone off stage. Yeah. It's 7.39, you think, okay, the number's over. Nope. Nope. It's not over yet, folks, because now the Copacabana is disappearing and we're now outside the Grauman's Chinese Theater. We were just in the
2: shrine.
0: Dreams come true, dreams come true in the Chinese theater. It's a place where people come to near and far
3: from the past. And here come the Grauman's ushers with Jerry Herman's Just Go to the Movies.
5: My be friends, from the third row.
3: This is the big moment. Her hat is literally the length of the stage. You know
2: how much neck exercising she had to do for this?
0: The
3: doors to Grauman's opens, and at the top of the staircase, it's, nope, it's not Snow White anymore. It's
2: acclaimed actress Lily Tomlin. She was on that lady's head the whole time. Yeah, isn't she good?
4: Well, I told them I'd be thrilled to do the Oscars if they could just come up with an entrance.
3: <laughs> Lily Tomlin's got the best reaction to this. Listen to what she has to say.
4: And think of it, more than a billion and a half people just watched that. And at this very moment, they're trying to make sense of it. And in how many different languages? It's mind-boggling. I knew it was.
3: Gonna Isn't be- she right? Isn't she right? And they're just trying to make sense of it. Folks, let's take a listen to Rob Lowe. And his recollections. This is him on the Joe Rogan show. Okay, okay so
1: I look out in the middle. Of the, I look out in the middle of the audience, and I see Barry Levinson. So he's at the, this on this Oscars. He's about to win literally eleven Academy Awards as an actor. There's no one you would want to impress more than Barry Levinson. It's the year of Rain Man, and I look out, Joe, in the middle of this, and I see his face. I'm not kidding. And he's. This is what he literally was going. He went like, "What the." F- Fuck! You see him actually make those. I, th- I see him mouth the words "What the fuck," and and so talk about bombing. And and I'm <sighs> like, but you know, we have to have our 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 actors denial. Like we can't get through a career without a healthy dose of denial. So I'm like, you know what? Fuck Barry Levinson. What does he know anyway? <laughs> fuck that guy. And I go backstage. And it's in the green room, and it's early because no, it's early in the show. And there's a, an older lady in the corner with f- like flaming red hair, and I'm kind of looking at her, and and she sees me, and she goes, "Young man, I didn't know you were such a good singer. Come sit down." It was Lucille Ball. Whoa. And I went over, and we sat down, and she held my hand, and we watched the Oscars together. And you know what? It made it all it made it all almost worthwhile. So the opening number is eleven.
3: Minutes. Oh, my God. Long. It's wonderful. 11 minutes long, folks. Remember, the longest they had been before was like four or six minutes. Ugh. Now it's 11 minutes long. Once again, we have these old stars who are old and confused. Why are they singing Proud Mary? Why are the tables dancing? Okay. So after that, I think the next thing I'm going to talk about is worse than that. those opening 11 minutes. Because in the middle of the show sort of like an act two opener, there was going to be one more musical number. And folks, this is the musical number to me that I think is embarrassing and atrocious. Not so much the first one. The second section is going to be called The Stars of Tomorrow. Oh, God. And it was going to be introduced by Bob Hope and Lucille Ball And now when they came out on stage, there was a standing ovation. Yes, I think these people were applauding the fact they were legends, but I think they were also applauding something that looked like classy old Hollywood, right? So they did some of their banter and their shtick with a few topical jokes about Dan Quayle and the Ayatollah, and then they brought on 17 young stars – who would sing and dance their way into the hearts of immortality. And Bob Hope says in the intro, make note of their names now. You're going to be earning a lot from these kids. (laughs) The Stars of Tomorrow, my friend, is nine minutes long. Oh, no. It was written by Marvin Hamlish and Fred Ebb. Marvin Hamlish and Fred Ebb, you know, I was great say, great have, songwriters. Have they
2: worked together before? No. Or? It was
3: going to be choreographed by Kenny Ortega. Okay. And the seventeen performers in this include <clears throat> Keith Coogan, Patrick Dempsey, Corey Feldman, Jolie Fisher, Tricia Lee Fisher, Savion Glover, Carrie Hamilton, Melora Hardin, Ricky Lake, Matt Latanzi, Chad Lowe, Tracy Nelson, Patrick O'Neill, Corey Parker, D. A. Pauly, Tyrone Power Jr. <laughs> Holly Robinson, Christian Slater and
2: Blair Underwood. It's a pretty decent list Oh though. my god,
3: are you kidding me? I don't I don't disagree. Chad I mean, Lowe? Everyone wanted to be a part of this because it was the Oscars and they were all up and comers. Now Kenny Ortega was really smart and he was like, "Okay, What can you do? What can't you do? And whatever you can do, that's what I'll highlight and show off. So Chad Lowe was like, I can't really sing. And they're like, great, you can scream your lines. Corey Feldman was like, I'm good friends with Michael Jackson. And they're like, great, do some of Michael Jackson's dance moves. They had Savion Glover, the great tap artist, come out and tap. But it is literally one of the worst songs you've ever heard in your life. The only bright spot, if you've never seen this, folks, is Patrick Dempsey McDreamy comes out. And he tap dances, and oh. he's really fucking good. Really? Yeah, they're, they're, he's really good. Folks, if you've never seen, first of all, folks, if you've never seen the 11 minutes from 1989, go watch it. And especially if you've never seen these nine minutes, I encourage you to go watch it now. Ray, let's take a look at the stars of tomorrow. <laughs> it starts with Blair Underwood.
0: Someday,
5: I'll be the one who walks up here, accepting the prize.
0: Someday, my Oscar will come, and
3: I'll grab Robinson
0: with tears.
3: And then here are all the stars, the young stars of tomorrow.
0: Don't tell me about my speech. I'll know just what to say.
3: This is poor Ricky Lake. Like, what is she wearing? There's a large Oscar statuette on stage, and it literally... Somebody said it looks like the golden calf. Like, they're all worshipping this golden calf. Totally. Now, here's Patrick Dempsey. This impressed the shit out of me.
2: Okay, Patrick Dempsey. Like that, to me, I that was, was like, really, that's, was that's like, great.
3: Yeah. I'm surprised he's never done
2: a musical. He's probably too cool now.
3: And here comes Corey Feldman with some Michael Jackson moves. Okay, and now they're swashbuckling. Christian Slater. And Ricky Lake. Come on, honey! They're literally all sword fighting, and we don't know why. Like, to me, this is ten times crazier than Rolling on the River. Who just backflipped out? Oh, that's Savion Glover. Now, like, like if it was Savion Glover and Patrick Dempsey, and who was the girl at the beginning, Robinson, who could actually sing? Holly Robinson-Pete. Just the three. What's wrong with just the three of them?
2: This is one of those things where we say this a lot on this show. Numerous people said yes to this yes well they were all honored and excited but I'm not even talking about the people I'm I'm saying the production team oh yes like numerous people like it passed through at least a few levels of people to be like yeah let's try it and the Oscar goes to
3: Right, like what the fuck was that? that? Was but let's crazy. be, but let's be honest. I think there were some really talented people up there. Oh, they're definitely right. Yeah. Now, here's what I want to talk about. First of all, there were a lot of good things that came out of this. One of the things that Alan Carr did brilliantly was who he paired people with. Because if you remember, sometimes it was kind of bizarre, like the pairings of people. Mm-hmm. So you know, and you're like, huh? Like, why? Why is Sir Lawrence Olivier out there with Kesha? Because first of all, he had been dead for thirty years. <laughs> Here were some of his pairings that I thought were brilliant. All the bridges together. Like Lloyd Bridges, Bo Bridges. George Washington and Bridge. San Francisco. <laughs> <Yeah>. Gold <laughs> Golden Gay Gate Bridge. He had a very funny bit where Martin Short and Carrie Fisher came out in the exact same dress. Anyone who played James Bond presented together, Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak from Vertigo, Sammy Davis and Gregory Hines, Tappers, Goldie Hawn, Kurt Russell, Tom Cruise, Dustin Hoffman. The pairings are actually pretty brilliant and he created the green room uh, was a decadent nightclub called Club Oscar. Oh. So it wasn't just people sitting around on sofas. He created this really, 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 really wonderful atmosphere now because Alan was just sitting in the audience or standing backstage. He could just hear the wild applause. I think what he did not take into consideration is that the people were applauding to be polite to the performers. You've just worked really hard. Yes, it was embarrassing. We're going to applaud for you. He thought this was going to be a smash hit. The telecast was viewed by no fewer than 42 million people, earning a 29.8 rating, including the USSR. Their first introduction to American entertainment was Eileen Bowman. But unfortunately, folks, it was not to be. In fact, the critics went after Carr with knives out, ready to tear apart the embarrassing show, which they did. LA Times headline, the Oscars was one big car crash. Uh, Janet Maslin says it is the worst production number in the history of the Oscars. I guess you can't top that. The publicity for Beach Blanket Babylon ought to be wonderful. uh, There was such anger at this camp fest. How dare some nobody come down to the the audience and talk to us Miss Snow White <laughs> and who were these youngsters that you said were going to be the future of film and if this is the future of film maybe I should get out of this business the next day Eileen Bowman had a lawyer show up and said you have to sign a gag order saying you can never talk about your experiences really and uh, for 13 years so for 13 years Eileen Bowman had a gag order on her wow now Carr is not aware of this and the next day oh my god he proudly struts into Morden's restaurant and sat down at the front table so people could Walk by his table and praise him. You had to pass his table to get in the restaurant and out of the restaurant. Oh no. People literally were climbing under the tables so as not to pass him. Customers were begging their servers, please just take my money and show me where a side exit is. I just can't talk to Alan Carr because they were so embarrassed for him. While Alan was crying in his soup at Morden's, the Academy had bigger problems. Remember Richard Kahn, the president, he got a phone call from a guy named Frank Wells, who was the president of Disney, saying, hey. Uh, Yeah. He said, guess what? He's like, nobody asked for permission to use Snow White. And only a few days later, a federal lawsuit arrived on Khan's desk charging that the Oscar telecast had abused and damaged the studio's Snow White character. It said, we want damages for copyright infringement, unfair competition, and dilution of business reputation. They pulled the lawsuit when the Academy publicly apologized for that mistake. Here's Bruce Valanche actually talking about why he thinks that there was something else going on behind Frank Wells' anger. Um, At the
4: time, the Academy wouldn't let any of the studios advertise any current movies on the show because they didn't want to imply an endorsement from the Academy. Um, And Disney was opening a theme park with MGM in Florida and they wanted commercials and the Academy wouldn't let them use commercials, wouldn't let them buy commercials. And so they did an end run around the Academy and they made a deal with Chevy and the Chevy commercials were shot at the Disney MGM studios and the Snow White number ended and the first thing you saw was Snow White's castle at the Disney studio- MGM theme park and Snow White coming out of a Chevy <coughs> and doing a number and I think that's what incensed Frank Wells. I think he was really, really pissed off.
3: While they were begging the mouse not to be litigious, a letter arrived on the desk of President Khan, and it was signed by 17 Hollywood luminaries. Many of these uh, 17 Hollywood luminaries, by the way, were friends of Alan Carr. And the letter said, quote, the 61st Academy Awards show was an embarrassment Jeez. to both the Academy and the entire motion picture industry. It is neither fitting nor acceptable that the best work in motion pictures be acknowledged in such a demeaning fashion. We urge the president and governors of the Academy to ensure that future award presentations reflect the same standard of excellence as that set by the films and filmmakers they honor. Signed by Julie Andrews, Sydney Lamette. Billy Wilder, Paul Newman, and Alan Carr's friend Gregory Peck, who said, if Alan Carr produces again, I am returning my Oscar to the Academy. Wow, he was his friend. Then, as if that were not bad enough, within a month of all of this, the Rob Lowe sex tape scandal emerged. And for those of you who don't remember, Rob Lowe... uh filmed himself having sex with a girl who was under, two girls I believe that were underage, and that videotape had gotten leaked out to the press, and the last thing that Rob Lowe had done was the 1989 Oscars, so now they were mentioning Rob Lowe from the disastrous (laughs) 1989 Oscar ceremony, so this opening number just will now go away. Now at this point, the Academy could have been like, okay, but are you ready for this? They created a committee to explore what went wrong. Like Benghazi or January
2: 6th. Oh, my God. A fucking
3: committee. They hired Gil Cates, who was like, well, here's what the committee has discovered there should be a host next time, more clips, and no long numbers. (laughs) And then the academy hired. Gil Cates to produce the next few telecasts which brought a sense of decorum and humor back and they let Billy Crystal take the reins as host and Bruce Valanche was the writer he was a writer and Bruce Valanche stayed on for years and years and years now Carr was shunned and not just shunned by the industry but by his friends and the notoriously media hungry Alan Carr was suddenly unavailable for comment and interviews he hid out in various homes until it was time for the 20th anniversary of Greece in which he emerged to do a revival of the film down uh, in California. But in 1992, at the age of 62, Alan Carr passed away of liver cancer, a person uh, forgotten by the industry and forgotten by time, but never forgotten by the caftan business. Or Rob Schneider. Or Rob Schneider. While we get back, why I think the 1989 Oscars is one of the best Oscar ceremonies and why Alan Carr deserves to be given his proper dues.
0: This was a thing. This was a thing. And, and now,
2: this is a skin. sketch. Now, I know a lot of people weren't happy with you, Mr. Carr, but look, I, for one, I really enjoyed the Oscars, and that's why we hired you for this show.
3: I'm very excited, Dr. Longrow. I'm bursting with so many ideas my caftan can't contain them all. Mostly because it's a caftan. But you get the point.
2: Sure. Uh, Now tell me about how you plan to produce this year's Nobel Peace Prize Awards.
3: Of course, but before I begin, would you like a little toot? It's from Allie McGraw. No? Just me? Just you. Just me. (laughs) Oh. Oh, wow. So, it starts with the Swiss Alps, and over the Alps comes Julie Andrews. Do you like Julie Andrews? Sure. She doesn't like me, so it's not going to be her. But it's going to be Norway's very own Ullmann, And she's going to be dressed like Julie Andrews. And she's going to be crossing into what ca- Norway. Norway and as she's crossing into Norway she's gonna sing and she's gonna sing ain't no mountain high enough and as she sings she's gonna go from mountain to mountain and 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 on each way and in each of the mountains she's gonna pick up a new winner and it's like The Wizard of Oz meets The Wall Street Journal. Does this make sense? Yes. Okay. love it. Wonderful. And they're each accompanied by a famous person. So Desmond Tutu will be with uh, ballerina Maria Tallchief. Get it? Tutu? Tutu? Uh, tutu? Another toot? No, I, 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 me. I didn't
2: have one in the first Hold place. Hold on, please.
3: Oh, <laughs> <sighs> huh, this is shit that Linda Hunt gave to Ally McGraw and it's really working. Do you want a towel? Now, Gorbachev, no, I have a calf can, thank you. Gorbachev is going to come on stage and right on his head, next to that little birthmark there's going to be another splat. Why? Because it's a watermelon, and it was thrown at him by Gallagher. Do you have Gallagher here in Norway or Sweden or Finland or Deutschland or wherever we are?
2: We understand the reference.
3: You'll love him. He's a real card. Now, the three guys who did the Quark model for science, they're going to be congaing on and they're going to be led by Armin Schimmerman, who plays Quark on Deep Space Nine. Quark, I believe, means really deep cut. By this time, we're going to get to Octavio Paz, and he's going to come dressed up like a big book. Do you speak English? Yes. And the others open him. and Not him, but the book. And when they do, the cameras are going to zoom in on the pages, and it says... 89th Nobel Peace Prize Award, sponsored by Isuzu. Then, as everyone is doing quick changes into the sequin burkas, we're going to roll the credits. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Written for television by Bruce Valange, Norman Lear, Red Fox, Tony Morrison, Herman Hess, Howard Hesman, So hot in here. You know
2: this isn't televised, right, Mr. Carr? Even better. Trust me. It's got to be
3: even better. Ah. Oh, ah. Oh. So here's a little problem. I think I ejaculated and defecated on your chair at the same time. But I know exactly what to do because we had Roy Rogers on the show last time. Bring in that towel. Thank you. This was a sketch. Okay, so here's my feeling on this. I think... If you look past that opening number, which is, it's just bonkers. I mean, it's just bonkers. I don't know what else it's, to say. It, it's, I mean, it's a fever dream. It is. And it and it is, you know, the Academy likes things logical. Yes. Or like, and viewers likes things Fair. logical. They like to hear the Academy Award nominated song is I Love You, sung by Cyndi Lauper. Here is, I, they like that. Don't make them think too hard. And it, and it, like Bruce Valanche was saying, when they sit there and go, why is Rob Lowe singing? Why is he singing with Snow White? You don't want to think too much. You know, why is he singing Proud Mary? Why the hell is Sid Cherise dancing around him? <laughs> why is Merv Griffin singing? You know what I mean? Well, I can explain Merv Griffin. Well, I think we all can. But I will say I applaud Alan Carr's decision to like, let's go big or let's go home. Because all of these other dumbass, dull, boring numbers that we had seen on there just did not work. Yeah. So why not? And you can see what he's trying to do. He's trying to say, hey, Hollywood, let's celebrate all these people who are still with us. I think they probably would have been more effective as presenters. Yeah. But this idea, and he was right, like Dorothy L'Amour, who was the sex goddess, she was known as the sarong Queen, she would wear. I mean, she was beautiful, beautiful, beautiful woman. Like just to see her up there, like trying to dance, and you can tell she doesn't know where to go. It's that is embarrassing for them. So I wish there was a classier way of doing that. But the ceremony itself is very well produced it looked gorgeous the pairings were great the banter was witty it was short it was quick he got rid of a lot of those he was actually kind of smart which was he's like i don't want to hear every fucking song nominated for best picture he's like i'll have bernadette sing a little sample of <laughs> of each in like one number and i'm like great let's move on with our lives and there was also some very nice moments one of them i'd love to play for you now which is it's dustin hoffman's acceptance speech when he won for Rain Man and you know we think of Dustin Hoffman today as kind of like a little bit of a prick but this I think this is just such a lovely speech where he talks about what it was like being in Rain Man but most importantly his family I think it's very sweet
4: here's Dustin Hoffman Um, my father so wanted to be here tonight ironically a few weeks ago he joined the family of the disabled and I understand that at the hospital where he's at tonight that a lot of People that I've met recently are gathered with him with uh, tuxedos and uh, uh, champagne cups and formals. And they're all watching this show right now on a big TV that they rented. So to the... To the wonderful doctors and, and nurses and rehabilitation people, and to the families that I've met recently, and, and to my father, and to his new friends, here's looking at you. Thank you.
3: It was actually filled with really nice moments like that. And of course, Rain Man did win Best Picture. So I think that this ceremony, unfortunately, was maligned. I do not think it's the worst ceremony on record. I think we've seen a bunch of those in the past couple of years. I think the James Franco, Ann Hathaway, is Worse. I think the most disastrous moment at the Academy Awards, I'm assuming, is not this anymore, but it is. I was going to say it was Moonlight versus La La Land when that mistake happened. Yeah. But now it's Will Smith beating the shit out of Chris Rock. However, however, I think that Alan Carr did beautiful work on this telecast. I am so sorry that he got fucked over. Something I would like to bring up was the idea that said, well, maybe because the fact it was an openly gay man that was producing this event and it was so gay and campy that that was what the reaction was to. But Bruce Valanche was like, no, he goes, that's, and David Geffen, I think both gay men were just like, that's not the case.
2: I feel like this ceremony opened it up for them to at least consider doing things like Anne Hathaway and James Franco and try to yes. think outside of the box and realize that not all swings are going to be hits, you know what I mean? And uh, uh, the Oscar ceremony, whether you want it to be you know, you can have it just be stagnant or you can have it be some new something new and the Oscar still needs to be something that experiences failure for to you know, like every other thing in the entertainment business. I'm also wondering if we're going to get to a point where we think the Oscars are just obsolete. No, because Hollywood is still so, is all will always be
3: self serving. That was the other thing I couldn't figure out. as when all these people were like, "It does not fit the the." Cl-. I'm like, "Well, what are you like? What are you talking about? Yeah, like that? You want another self importance pompous ceremony where everybody pats himself on the back for taking the right side of an issue? Yeah, you know what I mean. You wanted Blake Edwards and Julie Andrew and all. You wanted another stuffy." They come out in their boring tuxes and their boring dresses and they all pat themselves on the back. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, so, but because of that afterwards, then. The Oscars are now pretty much still in line, though, in a lot of ways, with a lot of the stuff that Alan Carr brought in that he just doesn't get the credit for. No, yeah. Yes, they got rid of the opening number, and I will say thank God for that. And what? By, I, listen, those opening numbers are god-awful. That's
2: what's so great about
3: it. Having them. Billy Crystal come in, though, and do do comedy right at the top, Yeah, it's fantastic. So, folks, that was the 1989 Oscar ceremony. Hope you've watched those clips. Take a look at it. And now, I think... It's time for a game. Oh!
0: This was a thing, and now it's a quiz. This is a
5: this was a quiz
0: with Mark Schroeder.
3: Mark Schroeder, were you aware of the uh, infamous Oscars?
5: Yes, I'd heard a number of things about the this this Oscar the 89 Oscars yeah, ceremony. Yeah, I had heard a number of things. I'd read about it, and Rob Lowe spoke about the Snow yes. White thing in his, yes. in his book, and. Yeah. And I love when mishaps and crazy shit like that happen. I love the Academy Awards, the glitz, the glamour, the excitement, Oscar night. There's nothing like sinking your teeth into all that. And I know a lot about it. I bet you guys know a lot about Oscar night. You're a big movie fan, aren't you? Big movie buff. Yeah. Big, big movie buff. I like watching and seeing the movies that win. I- like seeing the actors that win, specifically the acting awards are what I care about. We all remember the famous winners, right? But how many people remember the famous losers? Oh. Oh. We're going to find out in a little game called Nobody Likes a Loser. (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, You guys are going to work together in this game because it's going to be really hard. Okay? Oh, shit. Uh, I'm going to read the name of a famous acting Academy Award winner. It's basically just Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson. But gotcha. I'm going to name okay. the years where they won their their acting award. And you have to name as many of the losing nominees in the category oh, as right. possible. Oh, fuck me. So Vanessa Redgrave. There's an option. You can win a possible four, eight, 12, 16. There's t- 24 points total. Totally. Okay. Here's how I'm going to do it, too, because it's going to be fun. And the Oscar goes to Meryl Streep, The Iron Lady, 2011. Uh, Penelope Cruz. No. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence. No. Uh, Glenn Close. Yes, Albert Knobs, Glenn Close. Okay, so Glenn Close. Twenty Eleven. Yes, that's one of them. Marsha Gay Harden. Three more. No. Emma Thompson. No. Deborah Messing. Francis McDormand. No.
3: Can you can you
5: tell us what other movies? Well, without naming the movie. Julianne Moore. No. no. I'm gonna give you guys two Amy more guesses. Amy Adams. No. Anne Hathaway. No. The other ones were Viola Davis for The Help, Rooney Mara, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, Michelle Williams, My Week with Marilyn. Oh, she was great in that. And the Oscar goes to. Jack Nicholson As Good As It Gets 97 1998 8 Ray Fiennes No Liam Neeson No He uh, has five guesses each So you're, there's two for you Tom Hanks No Tom Cruise No Leonardo DiCaprio No, no. Rob, your guesses are up uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier No, no Lawrence Olivier He's Dead, right? He was dead Long dead I just Jack Lemon. He's dead No, no you're not 97 maybe not. Maybe not. One more One more guess Walter Matthau? No, we got Matt Damon for Goodwill Hunter. Oh. oh,
2: I thought he was, I figured he would be next. Yeah.
5: Okay. Peter damn. Fonda for Yuli's Gold. Oh Robert yeah. Robert Duvall for The Apostle. Oh, Apostle. I remember that movie. And Dustin Hoffman for Wag the Dog. oh uh. And the Academy Award goes to Meryl Streep for Sophie's Choice, 1982. Uh, Sally Field? No Sally Field in there. Sissy Spacek. Yes, for Missing. Vanessa Redgrave. No, Vanessa Redgrave. Jane Fonda. No, Jane Fonda. Katherine Hepburn. No, Katherine Hepburn. Um, Shirley MacLaine. No, and I think you're out, sir. Bridget Fonda. No, Bridget. Jodie Foster. No, Jodie. Diane Keaton. No, Diane Keaton. You're looking for Julie Andrews. For Victor Victoria. Victor Victoria. Jessica Lange for Francis. Yeah. And Deborah Winger for An Officer and a Gentleman. Oh. And the Academy Award goes to... Jack Nicholson, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Best Actor, um, 1975. Stallone? No. Robert Redford? No. Paul Newman? No. Dustin Hoffman? No. You have said somebody one of his names in jest in a previous answer. Walter Matthau? Yes, that's correct for the Nine. Sunshine Boys. Uh, Jack Klugman. No, Jack Lemon. No Jack Lemon in there. Uh, is one of
3: them a British actor? Possibly. Well, what's his name? I'll tell you.
5: <laughs> yeah, Robert De Niro. No, Al Pacino though for Dog Day afternoon. afternoon. Maximilian Schell. Yeah. For the Man in the Glass Booth, and James Whitmore for Give 'Em Hell Harry, which uh... that was. They nominated that for an Oscar. <laughs> I thought that was a TV movie. <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> the meanest thing you can say about an Oscar winner.
3: Fucking James I Whitmore that was and a sold goddamn fertilizer.
5: TV movie. We're going into Best Supporting Actors here now. And the Oscar goes to Jack Nicholson, Terms of Endearment, 1983. Best Supporting Actor, 1983. He won for that? He won for Terms of Endearment. I not know that. James Mason? No. Dustin Hoffman. No. L- Lou Gossett Jr. No. Good guess, though. Lou Costello. No. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> hey, bud. <Bart. laughs> right, this is a tough one. Charles Durning. Oh, for Whorehouse. To Be or Not to Be. Oh, To Be or Not to Be? Uh, John Lithgow, Terms of Endearment. Oh. Sam Shepard, The Right Stuff. Rip Torn for Cross Creek. Not to be confused with Rip <laughs> Taylor. <laughs> Taylor. Not <laughs> for cross to be dressing. <laughs> not. And finally, for Best Supporting Actress, the Oscar goes to Meryl Streep, Kramer versus Kramer. Oh, God. Who the hell? 1980. Geraldine Page? No. Deborah Maureen, Winger. Maureen Stapleton? No. Good guess, though. No Maureen Stapleton. Jessica Lange? No, Jessica Lange. Artie Lange? Susan Sarandon. <laughs> no, Susan Sarandon.
3: 1980. And it's supporting. She won for supporting. Supporting, yeah. Oh, there's probably some like random French person on there. Mm. Isabelle Hubert.
5: That's it. That's one. That's the one. Brooke Shields. Jane Alexander for Kramer vs. Kramer. Barbara Barry for breaking away. Candace Bergen for starting over. Oh. And Mariel Hemingway for Manhattan. Oh. Mariel Hemingway for wow. Manhattan. Wow. This is a hard one, boys. I'm sorry. God, a you did good. One. Uh you guys got three right on that one. Oh shit. Out 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 possible twenty four. I'm sorry. See? And this is my point. Nobody likes a loser. You don't remember. Lose, it's a valid point. Who, who true. loses the Academy point. Award? Did I so. tell you that
3: over the pandemic, my like pandemic activity was I watched all the Best Picture winners that's cute. in chronological that's fun. order. Oh, all of them. Yeah. Well, actually, I stopped in uh, '68 with Oliver.
5: Then you gave up. Then I gave up because like, I don't want to see Oliver. We're allowed to dine in again. <laughs>
3: <laughs> oh, what really? So that's the 1989 Oscars and. Uh, I'm as humiliated as Alan Carr right now because I should have known more of those.
2: <laughs> it's okay, buddy.
3: Thanks, thanks. Uh, if you remember watching the 1989 Oscars or have some memories of it, go ahead. Or dance in it.
2: Yeah, where can they find us, right? This was a thing pod on Instagram, www.thiswasathing.com is our website. Or you can go to patreon.com thiswasathing. Old Lucy level $5 a month gets you exclusive content that is like really, really, really good stuff. It's a dick pic of Ricky. <laughs> thanks for listening to this was a thing and a big thanks to the folks that keep this show running our editor daniel Cutcut schwartzberg our composer billy better than dc racy our social media director gabe hashtag crawford Our graphic designer, Natalie's nothing-too-graphic, DeSavia. And finally, our games coordinator, Mark the Shark Schroeder. If you liked what we did today, make sure to head on over to iTunes to rate and review us. The more stars you leave us, the more love we feel. Hey, speaking of love, show us some social media love. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ThisWasAThingPod, and Facebook we are ThisWasAThingPodcast. Reach out, we'd love to hear from you.